You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I am here today with Professor Jennifer Burns of Stanford University and also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Jennifer has this brand new book out, which is uh, amazing, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. The, this is, a, uh, in my opinion, a brilliant book that combines a detailed knowledge of intellectual history with political and economic history and written in, in just sort of really engaging and wonderful prose. So congratulations on the book, Jennifer. It's a great accomplishment. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words, Pete. And thanks for having me on the show. So let's start in the beginning, which is what drew your attention to a figure like Milton Friedman? You know, a lot of it grew out of my first book, which was on Ayn Rand, the libertarian novelist and philosopher, and trying to figure out where she fit in the constellation of conservative ideas and political movements. And I really saw her as sort of a grassroots figure who had never been part of any official, you know, intellectual establishment. She was very controversial among leading conservatives like William F. Buckley, but, you know, nonetheless, she had this appeal. So I really enjoyed kind of tracing that out. And then I was thinking about how to really craft kind of a bigger picture um, story of the origin and development of, of, you know, conservative ideas, as we call them in the United States. And so I thought, well, where, where's the other place they come from? And they also have this kind of top down piece. And I think the Chicago School and Friedman really exemplified that. And I sort of had to go through the Chicago School to put together what I thought of as the other piece of the story. And then pretty soon I just kind of got hung up on Friedman and realized this was another you know, really intriguing figure who, you know, could benefit from a deep dive. And so that's what I did. Yeah, it's a it's a amazing story. Just as a little aside, I, I was born in Rawway Hospital. Oh, you were? Yeah, I grew up in the town right adjacent to Rawway, uh, Clark, New Jersey. And so I've always been, you know, quite fascinated by the fact that, uh, you know, Friedman uh, grew up in Rawway, went to Rawway High School and, and whatnot. And then the Rutgers... And uh, I want to skip ahead after Rutgers, even though that early story is fascinating in and of itself. One of the things that Friedman did like to tell was the story about his, you know, mom, but his mom was actually like a factory worker and then he was ending to win the Nobel Prize. So he saw this social mobility story as a very big part of what a free society offers, correct? Yeah, it's true. I I came to think there was some embellishment in the idea that his mom was a factory worker. If she was, it was very brief. And from the research I did, they were a few rungs up the socioeconomic ladder than your average immigrant from Eastern Europe. But but it is true that he perceived that narrative of upward mobility. I would say a lot of it also had to do with the opening of opportunities for Americans of Jewish descent, which he really lived through and was, you know, a, a byproduct of the horrors of the Holocaust. And so I think that more than anything really convinced him that there was opportunity, there was openness, that sort of the sky was the limit. 
I greatly appreciated that framing in the beginning, including the correction on the, the over-embellishment kind of idea. But it, it's basically this story of economic growth through opportunity and whatnot that I, that I think uh, we'll come back to at the end. But I want to talk a little bit about his education at Chicago and his cohort in the early 30s uh, when he goes there and, and studies with them. And then his experiences at Columbia and NBER uh, as well, where he finishes up kind of his graduate education later on after the war. Um, but if you could talk a little bit about Room 7 and, and this whole cohort that he was involved with in the early 1930s. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is uh, not a lot of people know he's actually a Columbia PhD, not a Chicago PhD. Um, that being said, I think the Chicago intellectual experience really was formative. And I think it was that first year at Chicago. And what's really interesting about Friedman in comparison to other economists of his generation, he's just a little bit older. He's just a little bit older than Paul Samuelson, just a little bit older than James Tobin. So he comes to Chicago as the Great Depression is unfolding, but before any anything has really been resolved. And he gets at Chicago uh, a monetary interpretation of what's going on, because that is the first place that people went to fight the Great Depression. And so what I was really fascinated by coming into this project, I had some stereotypes of the Chicago school because I didn't know much about it. And I think one was kind of, it was a laissez-faire, let, let it burn to the ground and regenerate. That's the way markets work. And so I was really astonished when I kept finding these memos written by Friedman's professors, these urgent memos, you know, to the federal government, do something, spend more money, go off the gold standard, do this, do that, you know, long, long memos. And I was like, you know, these guys are not hands-off laissez-faire at all. Like they really see this as the response, the government has a responsibility to do something in this emergency situation. Now, what they tended to focus on was the banking and monetary reforms, which is the first piece of the New Deal. So Friedman was immersed in that analysis of the Great Depression as stemming from instabilities or failures in the banking and monetary system. And he was also immersed in the idea that in an emergency, the government could act and should act. And so he really picked that up, but he didn't see it as a fundamental flaw in this sort of capitalist order. Other than that, the banking system had been poorly designed and could be redesigned in order to make it better. So the other piece of that is he really set his kind of furnished his intellectual house, we could say, in that first year, 1932 to 1933, with the Chicago monetary interpretation and with what's later called Chicago price theory, but is really just economics at the time. The distinctiveness of it is not institutional economics, which was dominant in some other universities. It's not focused on reform per se, although it's not inimical to reform, as in the case of these Depression-era memos. So everything sort of crystallizes for him then he goes to Columbia, where he learns the more technical side of economics. By the time he gets to Columbia, though, he already knows sort of who he is intellectually. And one thing I found really fascinating is he had this encounter with a, another student, Mo Abramowitz, who really felt torn by the conflict between what he had learned at Harvard, this kind of classic price theory, and what he was getting at Columbia, this institutionalist reform-oriented you know, set of economic ideas. And Friedman didn't have that conflict. Like he had already set his priors and his bases. He was learning new tools. And he actually taught a course at price theory at Columbia, which did not offer the course. He was already set. And so then when, you know, the ideas of John Maynard Keynes come over 36 and after, it, they're not a revelation to him because he feels like he already has a bead on the problem. And so, you know, the other economists of his generation, 
because they're a bit younger, because they don't have any ideas on offer that seem to explain what's going on with the Great Depression, they're very taken by Keynes's interpretation. But Friedman really never is. So I think that's one of the things that just really sets him apart from his cohort of economists, you know, who who are who rise with him. Yeah, I think that that's a a very detailed part of the story that you tell, which requires a very subtle understanding of economic theory and history of economic thought. And I think this is a, a, one of the things that's so impressive about your book is that you really did dig deep into the history of the Chicago approach, the common knowledge of what economics was doing at the time, how that common knowledge changes. But also, you know, you you fill it with drama, which is how it is that, for example, Friedman faced resistance from like Wesley Clare Mitchell and others. And, you know, he, he, he you know, he is someone who was forged in fire in a way that Samuelson doesn't seem to have had a similar kind of forging when fire in, in, in many ways, like Samuelson was pushing open a screen door that was unlocked and Friedman was always fighting against the steel door that was bolted shut but somehow, you know, pushed it open. I love this summary that you have on page 101. I won't read the whole passage, but your final sentence is, Friedman emerged in his approach to economic problems, combined neoclassical theory, attentiveness to institutions, and a philosophical commitment to what Alfred Marshall called freedom of industry and enterprise. And that does set him apart from the other ways in which economists coming out of the 30s into the 40s were trained to go. And so he's exposed to all of the stuff that's at NBER, but he doesn't necessarily become an NBER guy. He's exposed to all the stuff in the New Deal, but he doesn't necessarily become a New Deal economist, right? So it's fascinating. Yeah. And so I think, let me go back just a minute. You mentioned Room 7. So so Friedman did his first year at Chicago, then he did a second year at Columbia, then he came back in year three. And Room 7 was a storeroom in the basement of the economics department that some of his friends commandeered, and they would kind of have their bull sessions and their rap sessions down there. And the group of students who gathered there were devotees of the Chicago economist, Frank Knight. And Knight is this huge figure in the history of economics. I almost like started writing a book about Knight. I got so sucked into him because a very inscrutable in some ways, kind of set may say one thing, I mean another, but he was devoted to liberalism, skeptical of all reform movements, devoted to price theory, and someone who these students just literally worship. So they clustered around night. And I think what Room 7 gave them was both an intellectual identity and a social identity. And importantly, Knight saw himself as fighting against uh, institutional economics first, and then against Keynesian economics in the latter part of his career, but really fighting against error. And the economist's job was to fight error. And it didn't matter if you were in the minority if you were convinced you were right. And so I think that is part of what set the pattern of, you know, Friedman's professional path that he was happy being iconoclast. He was happy being heterodox. He was convinced that was an okay thing to be because he had this really profound experience of these, you know, incredible professors and his peer group all sort of coalescing around. So room seven, it's really astonishing. Um, it's Aaron Director, it's Henry Simons, it's George Stigler. It's Rose director. You know, it's the people who were his lifelong friends. So that is really this formative moment. And then, you know, I go into the book in some detail. There's a big fight with Paul Douglas and there's all kinds of 
you know, sort of shenanigans around that, um, <laughs> that, you know, I think if, you know, for, for anyone listening, who's an academic, if, you know, if you think the politics are bad in your department, you know, <laughs> just check out some of these, these, uh, uh, stories, you know, I mean, that is one of the things that, you know, the world of economics was much smaller then, and the people had more powerful positions and they had bigger impact in the way that they wrote the foundations to try to squash grants for some and give the grants. And you tell that story brilliantly, I think, in here. Can you talk a little bit about Henry Simons? Because when you were mentioning earlier about Chicago and its activism, you know, Simons had this idea of a positive program for laissez-faire. So rather than a kind of a program where you just stand back, he wanted to have a kind of an activist program. But grounded in the basic principles of laissez-faire. And that influenced so much of Friedman and his cohort, I think, right? Yeah, I actually think, you know, I think Knight is hugely foundational for the reasons I touched upon and also because I do see Knight as kind of cracking open economics as a universal science and suggesting you could apply it to almost any human decision. So I see him as kind of the origin of the Becker strain. But to go to Simon's, I see him as the origin of the idea that price theory could be applied to solve social problems, and it could be applied to, and it should be applied. And it wasn't just a rear guard, reactive uh, idea that it should be positively applied. And so I think he really modeled for Friedman in his 1936 book that you mentioned, a positive program for laissez-faire, that you could be in favor of laissez-faire and say, we can use these principles and ideas to cope with the challenges of the Great Depression. We don't just, there's not just one option. There's more than one alternative. I mean, Simons is fascinating. In some ways, I think of him as the first neoliberal and that he wanted to use the state to structure markets more actively um, than many of his time. I also think of him really as sort of a Georgist. You know, he wanted the government to do a few things, uh, including some ownership of key industries, and then really let everything else go, step aside in other ways. So I think... Simons was a really important personal model, an intellectual model. And he also had a real commitment to egalitarianism that you see more deeply in Friedman's early thought and then fades a bit. I don't think it ever goes away. But Simons, you know, we have, I have some letters that he's writing where he says, like, equality is my God. You know, equality is my, this is what I want. I want more equality. So, so you find a figure like Simons and he just seems to combine so many interesting things that aren't combined in our present day. And then tragically midway through the story, he commits suicide at a fairly young age. And I think that's a real shift in the Chicago school because then he's not there anymore. And it, eventually his legacy kind of fades away. I like the way that at the end of the book, you return to that theme of the, of the egalitarian notions that Friedman had that he combined with meritocracy and the role that education, why that comes. So I want to ask a question about that in a little bit, but I think that was a very you know, insightful thing and, uh, you know, that you mentioned there about why it is that Rose and Milton were so fixated on the education aspect that that was the foundation that they left, uh, you know, for this. But before I get there, I want to, one of the fascinating things that I actually think a lot of readers will pick up on in your book, especially those in the intellectual history of economics movement, and really explore is this role of women economists in Milton Friedman's development as an economist. Um, he had a, a, a cadre 
of collaborators. You know, we all know about Rose and we all know about Anna Schwartz, but it was more than that that he drew on. And I would like you to talk a little bit about that because, again, these are not figures that are as well known as, say, Anna Schwartz or someone now. But again, the struggles that they faced that you lay out so well in here, like how long it took for Anna Schwartz to get a PhD and the resistance and everything. If you could elaborate in that, I think it would be really helpful. Yeah, for sure. So I I didn't have any idea about this until I started the research. And I eventually realized that most of Friedman's major works were co-authored with a woman or several women. And I just was really astonished by that. So Anna Schwartz is a co-author on a monetary history. Rose is a co-author on capitalism and freedom and his later work, Free to Choose. And there's also a whole group of women who were behind the theory of the consumption function, which is it is, you know, one of the ideas that I think has been the most stood the test of time, the best within professional economics. And this grows out of a paper that Rose Friedman and the couple's mutual friend, Dorothy Brady wrote, I think in the early forties. And, you know, then there was kind of this correspondence going between Rose and Dorothy and Friedman kind of jumps in on it. And what do you think about this? And so long story short is through Rose, he was connected to a whole world of researchers into consumption. And consumption researchers were women because that was the sort of one domain they could explore because shopping and buying and consuming was women's work so women could study it. And so they had an enormous amount of empirical evidence about how people actually made economic decisions in the world. And Friedman was someone who wanted to use empirical data to test and craft theory. And so he was very drawn to what they were talking about. In addition to Dorothy Brady, um, there was Margaret Reed, who was his colleague at Chicago, and then a couple of other women who kind of clustered around their summer house who might come over. And so basically what happens is Dorothy and Margaret have this huge amount of consumption data and they're trying to figure out, they're looking at farm income, which you know varies from year to year. And Friedman says, well, you know, when I studied doctors and dentists, you know, their income also varied from year to year. And so they had this series of summer conversations in their home up in uh, New Hampshire. It's not not Capitaf, the one before that. And eventually they kind of came up with a hypothesis that helped them explain how do people make decisions in the face of their income changing year to year. And so they came up with a permanent income hypothesis, which I just summarized very quickly is the idea that people make decisions not based on their year to year income, but on how they what they sort of hypothesize or conjecture will be their income over time. So they kind of mentally smooth it and that helps explain these various different behaviors. And so it also connects up quite powerfully to the emerging Keynesian synthesis, which was really rested upon an equation that dictated what consumption would be. And so the data from the field really didn't match what this equation was. So, so you have a sort of puzzle that actually goes up quite deep into the structure of the emerging Keynesian synthesis. So this comes together with, you know, in these conversations, in this research, one thing I uncovered in my research that that really hasn't been discussed before is that one of the reasons Friedman started writing up this project is he was trying to get Margaret Reed and Dorothy Brady hired at Chicago because um, Hazel Kirk had been the... Chicago basically had a one-woman quota. Like, we have one woman on the faculty at all times, and Hazel Kirk is retiring, so okay, now we have the chance to hire another. And so this sort of motivates Friedman to try to write this up and to try to get both of his uh, friends hired. Eventually, Margaret Reed is hired, um, halftime in economics, halftime in home economics. Brady, get, he eventually does get Brady a temporary position. 
And so, you know, over time, this becomes a sort of joint project is eventually published under Friedman's name. He's generous in the introduction in mentioning them, but given the mores of the time, the women really disappear out of the narrative and they're not really ever mentioned again. There's a few economists who know of this story and who will mention it. You know, Franco Modigliani talks about it in his Nobel Prize. I think he name checks Margaret Reed. But so I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how how did this happen? You know, Friedman's not the only male economist married to a female economist. So he's not the only one who could have been connected to this world, but he's he does seem to be the only one who was able to kind of take these economists as economists first and women second and really engage with them and their ideas. And I think that just had enormous intellectual benefits for him. I think, you know, the field of economics was becoming more quantitative, more professional, more formalized, mathematically formalized, and more macho in a way. And it was completely ignoring this other domain of economic knowledge. And Friedman was not ignoring it, you know, both because of his MBR training, his interest in empirical work, and his personal connection. So I think this is a place where you see those personal relationships really feeding into his intellectual work. And so for me, one of the answers to the question is like, how is Friedman so prolific is that he's sort of the head of a thought collective of many people. And he's the public face of that. And these other, you know, women, because of the prejudices of the time, they they cannot be the public face. And it's really interesting to me, at a certain point, Margaret Reed kind of hands the ball to Friedman and is like, she's sort of like, can you write this up? You know, and I'm like, well, why didn't she write this up herself? And I'm like, she probably knew like no one would pay any attention whatsoever if this was her paper. And so that's a a sort of poignant side of the story. But I think it shows women have always been a very powerful presence in economics. Um, We just haven't seen them. So one of the things that was fascinating to me in your narrative was um, how space was created for women through home economics because of biases. That's what they thought. Later on, you would say that also happened in labor economics. A lot of women were steered towards doing labor economics as opposed to, say, economic theory or whatever. They were steered in that direction. And uh, so this home economics thing led open to this consumption function work. And the consumption function, as you said, was such a critical part of the Keynesian apparatus. And Friedman climbed, in some sense, inside of the model and raised a fundamental doubt right at the core because it's related to the multiplier effect, right, and and everything, and so it's like uh, intellectually, it's an act of intellectual jujitsu, which is pretty amazing that he was able to do. I also wanted to talk a little bit more about Anna Schwartz. I, I, I began my career, I taught at New York University, and I was on the seventh floor, and Anna Schwartz's office was on the eighth floor, and I used to walk with her and talk. Uh, it's it's funny. Early in my career, I met some students of Friedman, David Fand, uh, who helped do the provisional text, as well as Anna Schwartz. And so I would walk with them and they would talk to me about Friedman. I remember Anna Schwartz telling me in, in the modern times, we're going to miss out in history of thought because we all email each other rather than write letters. And that she and Friedman wrote these long letters and she's telling me how full of things like that. But one of the things that was fascinating about Anna Schwartz is the power of her mind, but also the obstacles that she faced herself in trying to have a career. And so I wonder if you could like talk a little bit about that, because it was surprising to me that at the time that they were writing the monetary history, that that became sort of 
still something that she didn't get acknowledged for, even though that book became so big. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I did my best to kind of dig Schwartz out and, and bring her into the story. I think there's a lot more there and hopefully someone else or someone else's doctoral student will dig in because there's a lot of material there and she's a, a fascinating figure. So um, she was educated at Barnard, was, you know, highly, you know, noticed by her professors for her intelligence and went on to graduate school at Columbia, where she ended up as one of three authors, along with uh, Walt Rostow, who later became quite famous, and I think it was Edward Geyer, who ended up passing away. They wrote a, a, basically the, the monetary history of England. <laughs> it's like the first book, you know, this huge three-volume book. And um, it was supposed to be her doctoral dissertation, and it never happened, maybe because one of her mentors died. But the official line was, well, a co-authored, a dissertation can't be co-authored. Well, guess who graduated from Columbia with a co-authored dissertation? Milton Friedman, right? So I have a strong sense that Arthur Burns did a lot of the dirty work here in blocking her um, because he was the big gun at, at Chicago, uh, sorry, Columbia at that point. He was the authority on business cycles. My sense is he didn't want her to have a doctorate probably because of sexism, but probably also because she was a good worker and she had fewer options if she didn't have a doctorate and she was just sort of under his thumb at NBER. So the story evolves, you know, Burns has the idea to put Friedman and Schwartz together, which was an inspired idea. Schwartz really helps orient Friedman in the field, does, you know, the lion's share of the statistical work and data gathering for the project. They collaborate and they collaborate and sort of midway through the project, she's, she's still registered as a graduate student at Columbia. And they say like, hey, like we need your library cubicle back. You know, you got to, you got to register a dissertation and, you know, sort yourself out. And so she tells Friedman this and he's like, well, and she says, can I use a monetary history, part of a monetary history? And he's like, of course, like, I don't even, I don't know why you didn't do this with your first book, you know? And she doesn't say like, well, I tried and I didn't get anywhere. So that's in 58, I think. And he thinks, okay, great. This has been solved. And then as the book is coming to publication, the book is published and he suddenly figures out she still doesn't have her doctorate. And now they say to her, well, it, this can't be a dissertation because it's published. So if the committee has feedback, we can't give you any feedback and you can't incorporate it. And, you know, and he's like, what? Like, you've all been reading this for like eight years, right? Because half of the Columbia faculty is on the board at NBER. They've been reading. Like, it's a completely. So this is a moment where he's kind of like, oh, like something's going on. Like, he's really not getting it before at all. And so then he kind of gets it. And so he really puts his foot down, you know, he calls and screams and they're like, okay, fine. And they give her a doctorate. But it's really astonishing that there's, it's just this incredible unwillingness to give her any credit because women at that time were kind of the worker bees or the computers. They weren't seen as being capable of making an intellectual contribution to the extent that even in faced with empirical evidence of an intellectual contribution, it could not be recognized, you know? And so that is a place where Freeman did diverge from his peers and eventually, you know, was able to kind of push it, push it forward. I think by the time Anna Schwartz died, she had nine honorary degrees, you know, so people have figured out over time. But I talked to one of her, one of um, their students and, you know, who had been in at Chicago and, you know, said in the beginning, I just thought she was kind of the, you know, the researcher or she like did edited things or whatever. And eventually he was like, oh, whoa, this wouldn't have happened without her. You know, like, like she, she did a lot of the intellectual work here. So. Well, I think that one of the things in your book is um, unearthing that and setting that up for other people to dive deep into these different women and really uncover that 
you know, hidden history, right? I mean, you ref- you use the the NASA thing of the hidden figures, uh, you know, as a metaphor, but it, it's it's really true. Uh, let me uh, get back to Friedman a little bit. One of the things that your book does, which is amazing, is actually shows that Friedman, in many ways, simultaneously, is achieving tremendous professional success, the highest success that you can in this profession, scientifically. He's a John Bates Clark medal winner. He is a Nobel Prize winner. He's the president of the American Association, uh, uh, the AEA. All right. At the same time, he's deeply involved in politics in a way that I actually didn't appreciate before reading your book, because I always thought, oh, you know, Friedman worked during the war. But then after that, he was just this guy on the outside, you know, screaming. But he's deeply involved. I mean, he's providing advice. He's designing policies. He's really arguing for this. And then, of course, he's this amazing public intellectual that can be, uh, you know, lead eventually to like the free to choose, you know, video series. But he's also on the Phil Donahue show or he's in Newsweek. He's in all these things like that. How the heck does someone juggle all of that as an individual while also just, you know, raising two kids and, you know, everything else that that's involved. I mean, I think part of it goes back to this question of the women in his life, right? That Rose did the domestic work, so he didn't have to. That a lot of his work was collaborations. So there were other people, you know, moving it forward and doing the most labor intensive part. He also had most of his friends were professional economists. So he didn't really have a life outside of his field. And so I would say that almost all of his energy was devoted to these intellectual pursuits. You know, he, he did woodworking and tennis as hobbies, but he wasn't, he didn't have a robust social world that was not composed of fellow economists. So it was sort of always, he was always on in a way. And then the other piece of the puzzle is he really intersects with a growing conservative movement who sees him both for genuine and strategic reasons as a, a very useful figure, right? So, you know, William F. Buckley really cottons on to Friedman because he's trying to create a new type of conservatism that's intellectually robust, respectable, and critically not anti-Semitic. And so having a credentialed, esteemed Jewish intellectual as a figurehead of that movement is, is really one of Buckley's major goals. So there's this sort of symbiosis there that Friedman comes to represent this new conservatism. So he's becomes, you know, a popular spokesperson in the media for these, for this reason. I do want to say though, there is something, you know, clearly extraordinary about Friedman and his intellectual gifts. And what really struck me is that he is both quantitatively, you know, highly skilled, uh, a highly skilled mathematician and highly skilled in verbal um, writing, speaking incredibly quick on his feet And that was another thing that really set him apart from other economists who I think, especially as the field became more quantitative, were just verbally slower. And so, you know, Friedman had a comeback and a a witty repartee before they had even gathered their thoughts, especially for the significant percentage of economists who were of European origin. So English was their second language. So, and then he did have this sort of happy warrior persona that I think really fit the culture of the time. So simply put, he made good copy. He made a good guest. He had, you know, he said interesting things in an interesting way. But again, you know, it's really Rose who kind of pushed him into the spotlight in a lot of ways. Yeah, he was never an angry engager, right? He always was very enjoyed the uh, the process of debating with people. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't mean he couldn't be very intimidating and occasionally cut people down. There's definitely, especially within the academic world, he, you know, he sort of made sure that you knew his position in the hierarchy. I don't know if you've ever talked in the process of doing it, if you had talked to Deirdre McCloskey about this, but her argument is, is that when when uh, she showed up at Chicago from Harvard as a professor, young professor, the difference between Stigler's workshop and Friedman's workshop really stood out to her. In Stigler's workshop, people would give a paper and Stigler would say, I would never write a paper like that. You should never write a paper like that. You should write a paper like that and then uh, like mine. And then Stigler would tell you about the paper he would have written. Whereas Friedman always would say, according to McCloskey, um, I'm not persuaded by your paper, um, but if you want to write the paper you're writing, you should do X, Y, and Z to make your argument better. And so McCloskey always stressed this point that Stigler was involved in a transcendent criticism and Friedman found ways to always engage in imminent criticism. And so she argues that Friedman's advice is, is much better for you trying to develop, helping others become a better economist, whereas Stigler was just like conquer and conquest, basically, you know, in the intellectual jousting. I think it it really depends on the person. So you have some anecdotes. Uh, it's James Buchanan, I think, who you know interacts with Friedman and and heads the other way. He says this is this person is going to dominate me, and I can't, I won't flourish. And then you have Gary Becker, who is sort of humiliated by Friedman in his first class. You know, he says something, and Friedman basically says that's a stupid thing to say. And you know, but Becker really takes to that, and. Um, one of the interesting archival finds I unearthed was Friedman's letter to Becker upon seeing the first draft of his dissertation. And he's basically like, this is crap, you know, and he phrases it as you're too smart to turn in something like this. But, you know, it's it's like a two to three page letter of like all the things that are terrible about this draft. And some students, that would be game over. Like, I'm not finishing my dissertation. I mean, uh, today, uh, I as a dissertation <laughs> advisor would never, you know, provide criticism in that way. And so Becker just absorbs it and sends something back that Friedman ends up, you know, really championing and and being really important to Friedman. So it really depended on the person, because I think for some people, Friedman's quick repartee was overwhelming. And for others, it wasn't like, so Anna Schwartz, for instance, said, well, Friedman had this really wonderful way of rephrasing what you were trying to say even better than you could say it. And to her, that was sort of clarifying. I think to another person, that very same thing could feel like I'm not getting the chance to speak or Friedman's colonizing my brain for his own purposes. <laughs> you know, I think both are true. I think it depends on where you're coming to him, you know, how you're coming to him. I don't want to talk long about this, but I, I think one of the other things that's important in your book is the recognition that Friedman... You mentioned, uh, you know, when I asked about how he did juggled everything and you mentioned about the rising conservative movement. But within the conservative movement, there also was uh, Friedman needed to distance himself from certain parts of it. And I think that's a very uh, interesting part of the story. You have this coalition of conservatives, libertarians, and then basically right wing nut jobs. And Friedman is always trying to make sure that he is distance from the right-wing nut jobs, even though they're trying to build this winning coalition, right? And politics is about the minimum winning coalition. You need to build coalitions, but you don't want to have the nut jobs to discredit you, right, in the coalition. And sometimes he's very successful at that and other times not so. 
But, you know, when you get to more contemporary interpretations, they tend to like emphasize as if Friedman didn't have, you know, a issue of wanting to have distance from the nut jobs. Um, and I think this is one of the things in your book that's very subtle and and uh, very important. So maybe just a little bit about this, this, the context of the Cold War and who was all involved. Yeah, I'll just say briefly. And so in the 50s, he was very opposed to what he called the McCormick-McCarthy wing of the Republican Party. So McCormick was the editor, the isolationist editor of the Chicago Tribune. So he would have been, you know, very much aware of that. And he saw that as a vestige of what we might call the old right, that is isolationist, anti-Semitic, conspiratorial. And he was more of an Eisenhower supporter in the context of that. And he is this really remarkable exchange of letters with Fritz Machlup, who is saying, well, you know, Eisenhower is sort of in bed with McCarthy and he's and, and Friedman's arguing back. No, or sorry, Eisenhower. Yeah. And no, Eisenhower is the only way to stop McCarthy because if Eisenhower loses it, the party will become more extreme. And so that was one really interesting set of dynamics that really had to do with the transition kind of out of the World War II era when isolationism was still a factor. And I think eventually Buckley kind of creates this anti-Cold War coalition that it, in which isolationism doesn't have a place. And so the next thing on his radar that's sort of in the same line is the John Birch Society. You know, and Friedman's very concerned that the John Birch Society not become synonymous with conservatism or not become synonymous with the movement he's part of. And so that's actually when he first makes an overture to Buckley when Buckley tries to purge the John Birch Society. So it was interesting to me. I think you might find this if you looked at all political movements, but it's certainly true of American conservatism, this sort of dynamic between the radical edge and the mainstream edge. And how do you find that balance? You know, there's enthusiasm on the fringe, but it's obviously a dangerous place to be. And so I think that he was he was part of that balancing act. And that was very important to him. And a lot of it sprung from his sense that his fear of anti-Semitism and his desire to sort of push that to the margins of political discussion. Anyway, I thought that that was a very uh, important part of the book. I mean, I'm doing a little bit of a time hop because I'm that's kind of in the middle of the book. And then I'm thinking about like at the end of the book, uh, you know, the discussion about the contemporary issues with Friedman, but actually how you adjudicate between them. The other thing that I wanted to say in response to your point about Friedman being, you know, basically living in a corner solution is uh, David Friedman, who, who I'm friendly with. Uh, he one time told me that the difference between us as economists and other economists is that we're 24-7 economists. Right. We're not nine to five economists like his argument is all these other economists, they're nine to five and then they go home and do other things. But we're 24 seven economists. And I, I think that's relevant to what you're talking about. Everything is thought through the economic way of thinking lens and, and you know, every aspect of human life is thought through in those ways. And, you know, that has its issues, but not. I, I have two last questions that I want to sort of push you on a little bit. Uh, one of them is uh, the contemporary critique as misguided, which I think is is uh, something that you uh, stress, but also just capturing the, the age of Milton Friedman. You, you don't rely on this, but there's a great article in the JEL by Andre Schleifer under that title, The Age of Milton Friedman. Uh, but it's the same argument that you give, which is what ended up by happening with the Washington consensus and the period of economic growth and development between the you know, 1990 and the financial crisis in the uh, 2008, 2007, 2008. 
But on uh, on page 434, uh, you sum this up, and it's so much more than just the monetarism, right? Because it's the it, it, you know in that and on that page you point out that they the monetarists basically capital now was flowing freely across national borders, so we freed up the movement of, of of labor and capital. Antitrust policy was now following the kind of Chicago New Learning approach, which started with his brother-in-law and director, Aaron Director and whatnot, that politicians look to the Fed rather than the budget. So we're monetarists rather than Keynesians in terms of fiscalists, right? And that it, while it's true that government didn't shrink, you know, government, uh, you know, slowed in terms of growth. But then you make this great sentence, I think, Friedman made history, it might be said, but not under conditions of his choosing. And I think that's such an important thing because you you don't we don't stand in an Archimedean point being able to do things. He always had to do things on the margin within the given constraints of what's realistic, right? But the outcome, the evidence of the outcome of moving in his direction is pretty overwhelming, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a, a fascinating thing to see in the book, how he really is for most of his life in the minority and sort of a, a heterodox current in economics. And then he achieves a position of dominance in the field of economics. And that comes in part because of what's happening in the world around him. You know, that the rise of inflation, the kind of slowing of enthusiasm for social democracy, and then at the end of his life, the collapse of socialism and communism. And so it's not the ideas alone. And it's Friedman was in some places sort of in the right place at the right time as things changed around him. And there, what I am really trying to show it by the end of the book is there's a way in which he's been kind of absorbed into our current frameworks for looking at the world, you know, beyond right or left. And so I don't think he'll ever be fully left behind, although he's not, you know, as, as an economist going to have the impact on economics as he did once as natural as the field moves and evolves. But yeah, that's been really interesting. And it's been interesting in the last years to, you know, just even more recently, this sort of new debate about inflation to kind of unfold and to think about Friedman in terms of that, because it, it went away as an issue for so long. And now it's sort of back as an issue. And I think that makes him a resource once again, even if you're not going to find the exact solution, it's still, it's still really worth knowing kind of, he, he's really the foundational thinker for how we think about inflation and, and monetary policy in the modern era. Jennifer has a fantastic epilogue to the book, which goes over these more recent discussions about the inflation coming on the heels of the coronavirus pandemic and the way that we followed monetary policy and and all those things that that are that's uh, you know worth the price of admission. Just that alone is is, is fascinating. Uh, one of the things that I that I also really appreciated, and you might disagree with me about this. But one of the things that I found frustrating in the recent neoliberalism debate criticism is that um, they tend to think that it's the success. Uh, I'm going to basically gloss over some details here, but but they basically think it's a consequence of this sort of somehow a thought collective cabal that has really no evidence to justify it, but somehow because it was connected to powerful interests was able to somehow wrest control of Western democratic society and led to like this bad outcomes or whatever. 
And they just sort of say that as a, you know, as a, as a be all and end all. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of this political historian uh, that I knew when I was back in New York, Ira Katz Nelson. And he wrote a book on fear itself, which is about the Great Depression and the New Deal. It, it is a great book, but it's a, a lot of it is all the details about what they intended to do, not the consequences of the policies. He, he, he has no numbers in the book, really. You know, there's no unemployment rates, inflation, none of the things that you would judge whether or not the policies were successful or not. It's a great narrative about what it is that the Roosevelt administration wanted to achieve, but it's not a great analysis of what they did achieve, right? So an economic historian could counter. And I think a similar thing with like, again, development economics or the you know post-communism period or any of these kind of things. And so I really like the fact that you make this argument deep in the book, which says that uh, Friedman's persuasive powers, impressive as they were, they couldn't alone transform the political ideology of the day, right? I mean, it's not just Friedman's persuasiveness. It's the fact that the world seemed to conform with what he was saying, you know? And so that's such an important part of the interaction between the intellectual history and the, the economic and political history. And it's not just a happy coincidence, like the way you start that, where it's like, oh, isn't that amazing that Friedman always ends up, you know, where his conclusions are the same as, you know, his priors are. But really, there's something about the theoretical propositions that he puts forth. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things about that. I mean, I think you're putting your finger on on a dynamic in the way we write history in the academy today that really comes out of, you know, I say the cultural turn and in which interpretations and the interpretations people held are really privileged over, you know, quote, what actually happened, history as it really was. So it becomes, well, what's important is not kind of the impact of, that these policies actually had, but what people thought about them. Or so, so again, the interpretation is prioritized. And I think that's a couple reasons for that. And one of them is this gap between history and economics, this gap between, you know, economic history and history, which, you know, has its own history to the point where historians, I think, are hesitant and intimidated in getting into some of these things. And they're not going to look at charts of GDP as their first step to understanding what happened. So I guess part of what I'm trying to do here is lay out the welcome mat a bit and say, you know, come on in, the water's fine. I had two undergraduate economics classes under my belt when I started this book. I didn't need to become an economist, but I was fully capable. And I think any historian is fully capable of engaging with economic debates, economic analysis, you know, economic data and, and using that and really making sure to pay attention to that. And that's something, you know, that I really try to do in my own teaching, but you know, it's, it's interesting. Like I wanted to teach my students, I wanted to do like a quick five to 10 minutes on the gold standard, you know, and I really couldn't find a resource on that for them, you know? And so you can study 20th century history and just sort of miss the fact that we had this major change in currency regimes. And that's a feature of everyday life that we live with that, it, you know, isn't really considered important in a lot of the ways we present history today. So I guess like I'm, I'm trying to offer uh, an alternate way of doing it and say it's definitely can be doable. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. And I think there's a really rich overlap between the history of economics, economic history and history. I mean, there can be if we if we can make it happen. 
I, I, I can't tell you how impressed I was with your ability to do that. I think it's done fantastic in your book. And um, I also think that one of the things that you do is you are critical of Friedman on some blind spots that he had. And, you know, those the readers will do that. He's a product of his times, but he also probably could have been more attuned to various things. And he wasn't. Uh, that might go back to him being a 24-7 economist, right, and, and, and being myopic in some level. But at the same time, you treat him with tremendous charity as well, which is that you, you know, you take him to actually be a sincere trader in ideas rather than the idea that he's a sinister trader in ideas. And I think a lot of people view him that way. And so I wanted to ask you a question about his, he and Rose's commitment to education and its relationship to egalitarianism. Because um, the egalitarianism thing comes up earlier when the roofs and ceiling piece comes out, right? Because again, it's about what, but I, I wanted to just say a quote from Adam Smith, which, you know, our listeners probably know, and, and you know as well, which is Smith said that no society can surely be flourishing and happy of which the far greater part of the members are poor and miserable. All right. It, 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 you know, he, he, Smith's plan was for liberty, equality, and justice. Right, that was what liberalism stood for: liberty, equality, and justice. So when Friedman and Stigler write this roofs and ceilings, they're trying to look at what the impact of the policy is on the least advantaged in society, and that's what their focus is. And he never lost sight of that focus. And so he, as you point out in the book, he thought of education because he's a meritocracy person as like the critical component to getting off the ground to have any shot at the least advantage rising up. I mean, I'll say a couple of things about that. You know, Friedman lives in the time of, I think it's the Kuznets curve, the finding that as economies develop and become more capitalist, inequality goes down. And that's a, it's in the data. It seems very clear that may not be the case after the 1970s, but it is the case for the bulk of Friedman's career. So he has a good reason to believe that promoting capitalism is going to lead to a diminution in inequality. He also has his favorite solution to inequality, which is the negative income tax. And that's, you know, instituted as EITC. And he really doesn't talk much about it after that, which I think is a shame because it's the Latter-day Freedman that most people know. And he's no longer talking about this because it's sort of been done in his view in the EITC. But there is a shift in his thinking in the last years that, you know, I didn't really uncovered till close to the end of the book because I uh, was so focused on the, the, you know, sort of prime time, prime years of his life. You know, he's a, a big booster of globalization, privatization, the transformations of the post-Soviet economies. But in the later years, he starts to kind of rethink that a bit or at least become aware that we've created a global marketplace in which the unskilled are going to really have trouble competing, specifically the unskilled in the United States, because they're now going to be competing against the unskilled of the world. And so that's when he becomes very urgently focused on education. He says that really the only solution I can see is we basically need to upskill. And the only way we can do that is education. And he's convinced that the public school system is not providing an adequate education for that. And so his solution is to try to promote privatization, vouchers, things like that. So, so I do think there is a through line of concern about that. And it's hard to see if you think concern for the least advantage takes one specific form, say advocating social democracy or socialism. And if you don't advocate that, it means you don't care. 
But if you look closely at Friedman, you can see he did care. He just had a different set of solutions. It brings you back to room seven. Right, exactly. Right, and the use of use of price theory to solve the problems of social ills. Yeah, and I think it is a bit of, you know, Frank Knight was very pessimistic about the fate of Western liberal democracy because of the problem of inequality. And I think Friedman over time came to think, well, he didn't need to be so pessimistic. We've got this figured out. And I think towards the end of his life, you see a little bit of a return to that Knightian sensibility. So for me, had he lived another 50 years, we might have seen some really interesting twists and development, you know. All right. Last question. (laughs) It's probably an unfair question, but that is, is that, um, is there anyone today who reminds you of Milton Friedman or is Friedman sort of unique for his time period? And today we have just more refined specialization and it's impossible to have access. So people are multiple, you know, some people specialize in this, other people specialize in that, or is it possible to be a Milton Friedman today? You know, I'm trying to think of there's someone who who sort of has a foot in academic economics, popular discussion, and the formation of policy. I think one of the problems is we just live in a more fragmented media landscape and also a more fragmented political landscape, such that it's hard to have one person stand in as a symbol of many other things, which is what Friedman did, you know, to have one newspaper, you know, or one magazine anoint him one of the top three voices on economic policy and have that magazine have a very limited sphere of competition. So we may see one in the future, but I, nothing, no one comes to mind right now. Yeah, I think he's very unique in that sense, but it might be the uniqueness not only of his skills, but of the time uh, that did. You know, Friedman's an iconic figure. When I was a graduate student, which is in the early 80s to mid 80s, we there used to be a T-shirt and had a picture of Milton Friedman with the uh, equation of exchange. And it said, with this equation, I've conquered, you know, as a little picture. You know, I don't see graduate students wearing T-shirts like that, uh, you know, today. So uh, very unique character. You've done an amazing job of capturing him and introducing him to a new generation, I hope. And I wish you nothing but the greatest success with this book. And thank you very much for coming on and talking to me about it. Thank you so much. This was fun. And I really appreciate your careful reading and engagement with the book. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.